Let's pray. So, Father, this morning our prayer is that you would give us wisdom and help us to understand the purpose of life, that we might be those who acknowledge you as King and glorify in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose precious name and for whose glory we pray. Amen. How Much, man, how much Land uh, Does a Man Need? is a book by the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy. It opens with a conversation between two sisters. One sister is married to a merchant and gloats about the luxuries of city life. But the younger sister is married to Pahom, a peasant, who defends the humble and independent life in the countryside. She declares that wealthy people are more at risk of losing everything in their lives without notice. But Parham listens in on the conversation and he begins to think of the advantages of owning a vast estate. And he determines, if I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. But Parham's conversation is overheard by the devil who vows to grant him land. To cut a long story short, he eventually encounters a merchant who tells him of the distant region of the Baskirks where a group of Turkish people occupy the Ural Mountains. And the dealer promises Parham that if he can buy some fertile land there, the deal will be amazing. He arrives eventually to discover that for just 1,000 rupees, he can claim as much land as he likes. He gets there to discover there is a catch. He's given a spade, and he's told to walk around the estate, and he must go from the starting point to the end and claim as much land as he possibly can returning back to the same place before sunsets. He takes a flask of water, a loaf of bread for lunch, and begins to run and tries to mark off the boundary of all the land he wants to get for himself. Soon he becomes exhausted. He races back to discover the chief is laughing at him. And then he reaches the point where he started to seal the deal with all of the land that he's claimed for himself, at which point... He collapses and drops dead. And a worker picks up the spade. How much land does a man need? Enough for the grave, six feet from the head to the heels is all that is needed. The book ends with that statement. This morning, it's all about greed and self-centeredness and the sobering realities of death and loss that Jesus is teaching us as we come to this, the third of our guest services this fall. Because as we open Luke chapter 12, Jesus is being dragged into a bitter family dispute. A man, verse 13, in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus, God's great king on earth, refuses to be drawn into politics 
in this temporary life. His sole mission on earth is to prepare us for the life of the world to come. He's not going to get involved in the injustice of this dispute in this transitory life, but instead uses it as a platform to teach us all a cautionary story with an urgent lesson. He said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. For so many of us, our lives are caught up with what we own or what we want to own. Yesterday, I was in a bank and I saw this poster. What does prosperity mean to you? However you define success, we are here to help you achieve it. So how do we define prosperity? Because this morning, this is a sobering story of a man who thinks he's a great success, but God declares that he's a crashing fail. And the reason is he makes two fatal mistakes. Here's the first. He lived as though there was no God. Have a look at verse 16. The land of a rich man was productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. We're told very little about this man. We don't know how old he is, how many kids he has. We don't know where he lives. All we know is that he's wealthy. He's a businessman. He's living the good life, the American dream. He's a success. The business is growing like crazy. The profit margins are going through the roof. And all the more amazing at a time of global recession. But notice that Jesus emphasizes the real reason for his success. The land was very productive. And in the original Greek, it's more striking. The land itself produced a great yield. So it's not that this businessman achieved this through his own entrepreneurial brilliance. It's not that he's worked really hard on the financial forecasting or the investment planning. This man is blessed by the very hand of Almighty God. God, out of His incredible mercy, generosity, and love, has chosen to bless this man and his family. How kind and generous of God is that? So what should he have done, this guy? What should he have done? But got down on his knees, as the Old Testament law codes say, and thanked God for the richness of His grace. The law codes, Deuteronomy 8, 
The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, of pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are of iron and whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and you are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for all the good land that He has given to you. So beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes. And on that day, do not say, my power and the might of my hands has gained this wealth. It's the great harvest hymn we used to sing at my home church when I was a boy. For the fruits of His creation, thanks be to God. For His gifts to every nation, thanks be to God. For the plowing, sowing, reaping, silent growth while we are sleeping, future needs in earth's safekeeping, thanks be to God. And as the offering plate was brought up at our home church, we would say, all things come from you, O Lords, and of your own have we given you, because all good things around us are sent from heaven above. But instead of thanking God for His incredible generosity and love, this man turns in on himself. He is completely self-absorbed. Instead of getting on his knees and thanking God, he stands proud and pats himself on his own back. And in verses 17 to 19, I count 13 references to himself and not one to God's. He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. It's his first fatal mistake. He lives without reference to God's as though God is not actually there. And my guess is he does come to church. My guess is he has been baptized and confirmed. And my guess is he does go to a growth group. But he's a practical atheist. At church on Sunday for God, but in the week, it's all about me and my future and my plans. He lives as though God is not there. It is a fatal mistake because it's clear God is here. Look at the creation, the Creator's masterpiece, and whether it's the sunset on Hawaii, the glorious colors on the Great Barrier Reef, or the stunning northern lights off Iceland, or the expanse of the Grand Canyon, nobody can possibly be an atheist with integrity. But more than the creation, we know that there's a God because He's pitched up and come down in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. The only man on earth ever to say, I and the Father are one. 
And if anyone has seen the Father, he has seen me. And not only the claims of Christ, but his actions as he walks on the water and calms the storm and heals the sick and brings back the dead to life, eventually dying and three days post-mortem, coming back from death himself. His fatal mistake is that he lives as though God is not there. And this is what the Bible means by that word, sin. To be a sinner, I don't have to be a murderer or a, or a pedophile or a drug baron. No, sin is a, a three-letter word where I stands tall in the middle. Sin involves living with me at the center, where I do what I want, when I want, how I want. Sin involves me being in control, me being the captain of my destiny, paddling my own canoe. Sin involves airbrushing God out, taking His crown, taking charge, and shunting God out into the wings of my life. Surely one of the most uh, harrowing uh, of all of Shakespeare's tragedies is King Lear. It's the story of how those wicked daughters, Goneril and Regan, gang up on Lear and the other daughter, Cordelia, to steal the kingdom from the father who loved them so much. And there is no more harrowing a scene in all of Shakespearean literature than the storm scene, as Lear cries out in agony and torment at their abuse. And then comes this line, which I learned at school. Listen to this as he decries filial ingratitude, thou marble-hearted fiend, how sharper than a serpent's tooth is a thankless child. Can there be anything more serious or horrific than people made by a God of love who refuse to acknowledge His mercy and grace but slam the door in his face as we turn in on ourselves and say to God's, we want nothing to do with you. R.C. Sproul, the theologian, puts it like this. Sin is cosmic treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude towards the one to whom we owe everything to the one who has given us life itself. It's his first fatal mistake. And I wonder if there's anybody here making it today, living as though God isn't even there. And it's that first fatal mistake that leads to his second. Because he lived second as though he would never die. I don't know how you picture this guy. I'm guessing late 30s, early 40s. I'm guessing married with four kids. I'm guessing the kids now are at the best private school. He lives in a six-bedroom house. It's got 10 acres with the horse paddock. I picture the Rolex watch, the Savile Row suits from London, He's probably driving a Land Rover or a Jag or a BMW. And then there's the 15-acre house 
for vacation up in the Poconos. In fact, he's up there this weekend, surveying his estate, basking in the evening sun, sipping his gin and tonic. He's just got out of the pool. The steaks are cooking on the barbecue. And he thinks to himself, I've done so well. I mean, I've made it. The profit margins are going through the roof. The business is about to be floated on the stock market and Wall Street. International investments pouring in. The pension plan is solid. The property portfolio is growing. My assets are secure in the offshore haven. My gold safely deposited in Bermuda. I'm diversifying with property in the multi-state property investment portfolio and through international holdings. My wife and I are secure. The kids are secure. The grandkids are secure. I'm living the American dream when suddenly he feels a searing pain in his chest. His wife says, are you all right? And the color drains from his face. She rushes to grab the phone and dial 911, but he collapses to the floor and dies and is plunged into eternity and comes face to face with Almighty God and with final judgments and his eternal destiny. In verse 19, he's passing judgment on himself. Well done, me. And then in the next second, God's passing judgment in verse 20. You fool. This very night, your soul will be required of you. Now who will get who you have prepared? Verse 21, the man who stores up treasure for himself but is not rich towards God's. T.S. Eliot once famously said that people cannot bear too much reality. And he was right. And the thing is, we don't handle the reality of our death well, do we? Americans don't like to talk about death. We don't like to plan for our death. If you don't believe me, try this experiment. Next time you're invited to a dinner party, turn to the hostess and the host and say, hey, have you given thought to your death recently? And see how that goes down. It's the great unmentionable, isn't it, death? Yet the Bible says we are like a mist. We appear in the morning and then we're gone. We are like the flowers of the field. We flourish and then we're gone. And the reality is the grave is your destiny. We are all in the crematorium line. And so the undertaker signs the letter, yours eventually. And we can try to minimize it, she's only in the next room, or try to laugh it off. But the reality is, we will die and then face God's judgment. And here, God's judgment in verse 20 on this man couldn't be more devastating. 
It's one word in the original, fool. That word fool doesn't mean it's funny. It's not that he's a Steve Martin or a, or a Bill Murray. A fool here is the worst condemnation possible. It's a word taken from Psalm 14, our first reading. The fool says in his heart there is no God. It's a rude word, literally idiots, literally moron. What a moron. What an idiot. What could be more idiotic to live in a world clearly made by God as though God is not there and to live in a world surrounded by death pretending that we will never die? What a moron. Yet this is how so many Americans choose to live. Everybody prepares for their future. The expecting parents get ready for the baby. The student gets ready for the exam. The patient prepares for surgery. The saver prepares for retirement. Wisdom surely must mean we prepare to meet God our maker. This very night, your soul will be required of you. And that word required in the original language is a word borrowed from accountancy and business. It, it literally involves being demanded back uh, in the same way that a car lease or a loan might be. And the point, therefore, is that your life is not yours. It's on loan, on lease from God. And one day, and we don't know when, the lease will be called back in. The life will be called back by God. My life is rented. It belongs to God, on lease to me. Over 4.1 uh, billion people watched the funeral of Her Majesty the Queen. Did you know it was the most watched television program or events ever in world history? The most sobering moment was surely in St. George's Chapel, when as the coffin was brought in and placed at the catafalque in the middle of the chapel, the Lord Chamberlain took the wand of office and broke it in two, signifying the end of the reign. And I almost burst into tears at what then happened, as the Dean of Windsor took the imperial state crown followed by the orb and scepter off the coffin and placed it on the altar. And then if you listen very carefully as you rewatch it, no longer was she called Queen Elizabeth, simply our sister Elizabeth. For in death she ceased to be queen, and at death she left behind her wealth the richest woman in England, her crown as queen, and the symbols of states. For at the moment of death, she opened her eyes as a Christian believer into the glory of the presence of Christ, not as a queen now, but as a sister, a child of God in his presence forever. But none of the wealth, none of the wealth of the realm could be taken by her into the life of the world to come, and it's the same for us. 
And one of the most sobering duties of a pastor is to take a funeral, and certainly in the Church of England, in the Book of Common Prayer, the coffin is escorted into the church to these words, naked we came into the world, and naked we will leave. We brought nothing in, we brought nothing out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The story is told of a wealthy Wall Street financier. He died, and it was his funeral in New York. And one of the mourners said, so how much did Bill leave? And the response was instant. All of it. There's a biting irony in our story. Uh, like a Scrooge, I suppose, this man didn't want to give any of the yield to God's, let alone to anybody else. But who gets it now? The man who never wanted to give away any of his possessions now has all of his possessions given away. All of his lands. For Tolstoy is right. How much land does a man need? The brutal answer. Six feet by three. But maybe there's somebody here this morning thinking, well, fine. Fine by me. I don't care what God's verdict is on my life. It doesn't bother me. But that's to misunderstand the implication of that word fool. For, for God to say fool on the final day means that this man isn't in his kingdom. It, it means that this man has no share in the beauty and paradise of the life to come. It means that this man hasn't been rescued by God. It means that this man is excluded from God's kingdom, which means that this man now must face the terrors of God's eternal judgments and the agonies of his never-ending punishment in the darkness and horrors of hell. And if you don't believe that that is what Jesus teaches, it's there in verse 5, as Jesus says, I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after the killing of the body, has the authority to cast you into hell. Yes, fear him. It's a tragic story. This, this man, this, this, this great planner, he plans for everything apart from the most important thing, his death. This, this success story, but actually God declares him a terrible fail. And in verse 21, Jesus widens out this story from this one man as the camera now pans out to the panoramic view, to the crowd and to the whole of humanity, for this is how it will be with everyone who lays up treasure for himself but is not rich towards God. So what does it mean to be rich towards God? It's this. It means to acknowledge that God is the source of everything. It means to acknowledge that He is the good God who loves me. 
It, it means to acknowledge that he has authority over my life in the now and forever. It means to thank him and to place him at the center of all that I do. That's what the Bible means by repentance. And it's a great deal, as Jim Elliot once put it, for he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But how can a sinner like me really be rich towards God's? And the answer is all bound up with the death of Jesus. Back in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, and he's, he's heading there now as he tells this story. And he's going to Jerusalem to show riches to us in his saving death at Calvary, so that in giving us the riches of his mercy, in saving us through his death and shed blood and broken body, we might through him then have hearts changed by his Spirit to be rich towards him as we trust in his rule and rejoice in his rescue. By nature, we can't be rich towards God. The application of this is not be rich to God, it's to say, I can't be by nature. But Jesus is heading for the cross, and at the cross He'll pay in His own flesh and blood as He pays the penalty for my sin, as He takes the punishment that I deserve so that I might be redeemed, rescued, and saved to belong to the God rich to me that in response, I might be rich to Him. On January the 13th, 1982, during a period of extraordinary bad weather in Washington, D.C., Air Florida Flight 90 took off from Washington National Airport. It failed to gain altitude and eventually crashed into the 14th Street Bridge hitting six cars and a truck before careering off into the Potomac River. Soon, only the tail section of the plane remained, and only six of the 79 on board were still alive, holding on to the tailpin of the plane. News cameramen eventually arrived filming this extraordinary scene as millions of Americans watched to see what would happen next as the helicopters arrived and the winch went down. But it was what happened next that was so extraordinary. A man was spotted in the icy waters of the Potomac, and he grabbed the winch. And then, to everyone's astonishment, he handed it to a woman they hadn't seen next to him, and she was taken to safety. The helicopter came back for the man. He grabbed it again and then passed it on to another person next to him. He was taken to safety. It was repeated again and again and again, five times. Eventually, the helicopter came back now to rescue the one man they had seen in the water. But it was too late. The tailpin had gone down in the icy waters of the Potomac, and he had been dragged under and was dead. His name was Armand Williams, but around the world today are five people with an extraordinary story that goes something like this. We are alive today because on that awful day of terror in the icy waters of the Potomac, Armand Williams decided to give up his life 
that we might be saved, that we might live. And I'm guessing they and their children and their grandchildren will be eternally grateful, rich in their hearts to Him for all that He has done in His kindness and sacrificial grace towards them. A picture, perhaps, of the cross, for through Christ's death we are saved as He takes our guilt and gives us His perfection for free. Two fatal mistakes. He lives as though there is no God, and then He lives as though He's not going to die. T.S. Eliot's People can't handle too much reality, but here are the two realities. There is a God with whom we must do business in this life as we turn to Him as King, the God who made you, who loves you. And reality number two, we are all in the crematorium line because the grave and eternity is your destiny, which is why today, if you haven't yet done this, it would be a great day, wouldn't it? to face that reality of eternity, of death, and to face the wonderful reality that God is your creator and savior, a God who loves you and whose son was broken at Calvary, that you might enter into his kingdom through his shed bloods, broken body, and saving grace at the cross of Calvary. An application for us all. Be rich in your life to God. Take off the crown and surrender to Him this coming week. But for those of us who are not yet Christian, there's a prayer on our sheets here. It's a prayer which gives me the chance to come to God for the first time today, acknowledging His love and acknowledging the reality of my death and it's a prayer to pray if you want to come on in to this kingdom and find the salvation of Jesus Christ for yourself and for free. I'm going to pray it in just a moment. Let me just read it to you. And if as I read it you think, that's the prayer I need to pray, then second time round, in the quietness of your own heart, please would you join me as I lead us out loud. Here's the prayer. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I'm guilty of rebelling against you, and I deserve your judgments. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins and rose again from the dead. Please forgive me, and by your Spirit, help me to live a new life under the rule of Jesus your son. And I'm wondering if there's one or two, three or four people here today saying to themselves, this is the prayer I need to pray today. Let's bow our heads. We'll be quiet and in the space and privacy of our own hearts. Please echo it quietly as I lead us out loud. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. 
I'm guilty of rebelling against you, and I deserve your judgment. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins and rose again from the dead. Please forgive me, and by your Spirit, help me to live a new life under the rule of your Son. Amen.